Welcome again. Uh, the text for today's sermon is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you're a person that likes to follow along uh, in the text, Matthew 2, 1 through 12. And this is a story of the wise men, the men from the east who came to worship Jesus uh, when he was first there born and they followed the star and the whole story. And we'll read that story. But um, as we reflect on this story, as we reflect on the light shining in the darkness and the possibility and the potential of a new year, I have two questions that I want to ask us today. Two questions I want to ask of myself and I would like us to ask as a body. Two questions that for me are underneath all the other questions that I love to ask this time of year. Uh, questions like, what will I eat? Uh, what will I, what kinds of activity will I do? What will I accomplish in this year? As I look back on last year, what do I want to change? There's a myriad of questions of, that face us as we go into a new year. But underneath all of those questions, if I'm honest and if I remember, I'll remember there are two foundational questions that help govern all of those other questions. And the first one is, what or who will I worship? What or who will I worship? And the second one is, who will I become? What kind of person will I be? What will be my disposition, my authentic, true self, when all the layers, the facade, the, all the stuff is gone, at the core of who I am, what will I present to the world? What will I worship and who will I become? As we dive into this story that Matthew tells and Matthew's entire gospel, a new story for a new year, as we ask these questions, I think we will find a home in Matthew's gospel. This is Matthew telling the story of Jesus, of his birth, of his life, of eventually his death, his suffering and then his resurrection and commissioning of the church. We see all of that in the 28 chapters of Matthew. And I commend that story to us this year as we study it, as we work through the intricacies of the text, and we listen through Matthew's voice to the voice of God, to the voice of Jesus, speaking through the power of the Holy Spirit to each of our hearts and to us as a church. As we listen to this story, we hear about the miracle, the mystery of the birth of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. He tells us the birth of Jesus Christ happened in this way. We cannot perfectly explain the mystery of the birth of Jesus, nor Mary's pregnancy, nor exactly how God became human. But we can, however, somehow, miraculously, understand. We can understand the mystery that is revealed and given through the work of believing, the work that is open to us, the work of trusting, the work of learning again how to live in a world that is both evil and beautiful, in a world that is filled with terror and flooded with hope. By believing and learning the story of Jesus, we learn again to live with benchmarks and victories that do not always match the metrics of popular culture or utilitarian economics or the like. The world stands in need today, as it did 2,020 years ago, stands in need in desperate need of a story, a story worth believing and a story worth telling, a story worth living, 
a real, gritty, sturdy, dependable, and hopeful way of being in the world. Some gospel, some news to believe that is worthy of the capacity and the longing of human beings. Human beings like ourselves with rich souls and miraculous bodies waiting to be enlisted in something worthwhile. It is into our quandary that Matthew announces, that he speaks, that he hollers and proclaims, Jesus is born. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. As we share the news of Merry Christmas, it is quickly clouded in Matthew's story and in ours by the reminder of the setting of his story. And Matthew uses one, two, three, four, five, six words to describe this backdrop, this setting. The days of Herod the king. The days of Herod the king. The days of religious persecution by deranged shooters and men with machetes. The days of new Herods and ruthless dictators of developing countries. Herod is a summary word for all of the evil that we could see in the world. Herod himself, Herod the Great, was, I mean, to say horrible doesn't even begin to come close. The guy had to rewrite his will six times for six different kids. He killed his own wife. Right? He murdered anyone that he perceived as a threat to him, anyone that got close to him, anyone that had a little bit too much power that he wasn't comfortable with. It was the law of murder, an economy of murder. A gospel of murder. And it is into that world that Jesus was born. In his vulnerable state as a baby. And it is in those days, even in those days, that Matthew says, Behold. Behold. And here's that story. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came out of they came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Wise men came from the east, magi. Uh, we've used our good liturgical imagination, and we typically think of there being three. We've kind of migrated them from wise men or astrologers or whatever they were to kings. So we sing we three kings and it's a fitting thing to try to kind of translate and understand and imagine what those guys would have been like. And I think that's part of what Matthew wants us to do is imagine the most unlikely people you can imagine who would come to worship Jesus. Who are the most unlikely people you can imagine who would come to church, who would come to hear the story of Jesus? If you can think of a few really unlikely people, maybe who don't speak the same language as us, maybe who live in a different part of the world, on a different side of town, who have a whole different philosophy and way of seeing things, imagine just some unlikely people or an unlikely person, and there you have it. Magi, wise men, unlikely Gentiles from a faraway land. And they show up in Jerusalem and they begin to ask these great questions. Where is the king? We... We want to see the king. Can you tell us where the king is? For we saw his star when it rose in the sky. We saw the star. We followed the star. And we're here. We're pretty savvy on the way things work. We watch the stars. We watch the planets. We understand what's going on. And we saw this new star. And we have come to worship this God. So show us where this new king is. We have come to worship him. 
The text continues, so when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, of course, felt threatened, and all Jerusalem with him. And so he assembled the chief priests and the scribes of the people. Think of the Fortune 500 of most important people who knew what was going on, who were savvy about the world that we lived in. And he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him, okay, well, it's going to be in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Matthew 2, verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so Herod summoned the wise men secretly. Because, of course, he felt threatened and he knew they were looking for this king and he was interested in finding the king too. So he calls them and he says, Hey, what time about did that star appear that you talk about? And so they told him and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And we know from the rest of the story that Herod had no intent of actually worshiping Jesus, but in fact he wanted to kill the threat to his throne. So he wanted to find out where Jesus was, so he sends the wise men and they go out and they're looking. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, I know this story sounds crazy. This story is one of the reasons people have been fascinated with Matthew's gospel, even if they didn't proceed to believe in Christianity and in, in the gospel that we believe in, in Jesus Christ and his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection. They were fascinated by this story. What kind of story, what, what kind of God could this be that would draw people, the most unlikely people who would come following a star of all things, to find a new king who was worthy of worship, who was worthy of all the longings and capacities that they knew were within them as human beings. How could this happen? Why would it go like this? And, you know, we've seen crazy things before. Uh, we, we know that things like this happen. St uh, things happen in the sky and the clouds. And how many times have you caught yourself, you know, looking at a sunset or a sunrise and you, through that, through nature, God has spoken something to you. He's reminded you that in the midst of a hard time, it's going to be okay, or that you're not alone, or that God sees us in our pain, or something like that. Um, I made a note of this last year when I was reading the story for this Sunday, because I was thinking, this is kind of like an epiphany moment. Uh, it's kind of like this story, but I was reading last year uh, a book by Ronald C. White. Not Ron White like the comedian, uh, but uh, a different Ron White. Ronald White, he wrote a book on Lincoln's second inaugural speech, which many people say uh, was Lincoln's greatest speech and one of the greatest speeches ever written. It was a very short speech. Uh, it was a very beautiful speech. And the book is just about how that speech came about and the context of everything. So it's, it's great just reading about it and imagining what it was like to be uh, in that area in D.C. at the time, of course, of dirt roads and everything. And they're describing what was going on. Well, on the, on the day of the inauguration, it was really rainy and cloudy and just kind of, I imagine, foggy and just hard to see. And they were worried about people not coming out for the event. And so things are going on. And, and Andrew Johnson is giving his VP uh, speech uh, the, there at the inauguration. And apparently Andrew Johnson was so drunk that his seven-minute speech turned into a 17-minute speech. And Lincoln's leaning over to his visors is like, do not let that guy back on the stage, <laughs> whatever you do, like we could tell. So, you know, when people are writing about this, all the people from the papers from California, New York, everywhere have come to, to cover this event. 
And so we have all these eyewitness accounts of what happened. And so here's we have an eyewitness account from a guy named Michael Shiner, who was an African-American mechanic in the Naval Shipyard in Washington. And he recorded this in his diary for March 4th. Precisely as Lincoln began to speak, uh, many people wrote that the sun broke through the clouds and many persons at the time and for years after commented on this phenomenon. So here's what Michael Shiner said. As soon as Mr. Lincoln came out, the wind ceased blowing and the rain ceased raining and the sun came out and it became clear as it could be and calm. And Shiner continued, a star made its appearance over the Capitol and it shined just as bright as it could be. There was a reporter named Noah Brooks who reported the same phenomenon saying just at that moment the sun which had been obscured all day burst forth in its unclouded meridian splendor and flooded the spectacle with glory and light and Lincoln prepared to speak. Doesn't it just sound majestic and at the same time going really? Can that really be the case? But what are we supposed to do with all the eyewitness accounts? I don't know. It's just kind of a cool thing to think about in the way that these events, the ways that God reaches out, the ways that we, the ways that God gets our attention, that we begin to pay attention to things maybe that we've missed in the past. So the wise men, they follow the star, they find the place where the child was, and when they saw the star and where it had come to rest, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. One of the best lines in the whole gospel. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. But they found what they've been looking for. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. The story that follows in Matthew's gospel is how Jesus inhabited our world as a true king, finally fulfilling our longings for a worth while ruler. Do we not have those longings? In the meantime, we ask ourselves the question, how do we live? How are we supposed to live in a Herod-filled world while we wait for the final resurrection? We will learn this too in the pages that follow. We know that it begins with a glimmer. It begins with a flash of hope with the search and the willingness to kneel down, to fall down, and to say, I am not the king. I am not the one that I seek. Rather, I am searching for the true king. And if we follow Matthew's story, we will find ourselves on the heels of the wise men, the most unlikely people to believe the gospel, the Gentiles, who remind us, wherever we stand, that we were created for worship. We were created to cry out to God as children cry out, to their parents. We are reminded that there is one true king who is worthy, and him alone, who is worthy of our worship. And Matthew's gospel tells a story that we will do more if we follow Christ. We will do more than just get by in Herod's world. We will shine like stars. And for me, this is, this is a hard one. This is where the rubber meets the road for me. Because sometimes I find myself falling in the ditch of just getting by in Herod's world. I think I've got some alternate bailout plans. You know, if, if this being faithful as a Christian thing doesn't work out in the world, now how can I, what other bailout plans might I have? How can I just get by 
in Herod's world. I got a kind of a funny story to illustrate how this, that I thought of this story when I was being convicted about how I have these bailout plans for not living fully and, you know, the temptation to just get by in Herod's world. And uh, so I was having a, a, a text conversation, which I'm not, I'm not a very good communicator anyways. And when I, when, when you introduce text messages into it, it just gets more convoluted. And so we're trying to have a little meeting with some of our youth volunteers and uh, here a couple of weeks back. And so we were, we were trying to work this out. And so two of our primary youth volunteers that I was trying to communicate with, I'd already talked to the others, were Wes Stafford. And, and I don't normally tell stories about people by name since y'all all know Wes. Wes Stafford and Caleb Hoover. Caleb's not here to defend himself, but Wes is. So if Wes bull rushes me, y'all, somebody protect me, please. Uh, but I was texting these guys. and we were just All we were trying to do was find a time where we could get together, which shouldn't be that hard, but we were texting back and forth. Well, there was a miscommunication. And two of us thought the meeting was when it actually was. And then one of us thought it was the week before. So I get a text from Caleb and I, and I texted him back. I said, Hey, Caleb, it sounds like we've had a miscommunication. I said, jokingly, Hey, why don't you text Wes and tell him he's not a very good communicator? Or he needs to work on his communication skills, which I said, of course, laughing, knowing that if Wes actually saw that, like I would die. Um, if you don't know Wes Stafford, he's a, he's a big, gentle giant, but he's very terrifying uh, if, if you don't. And so um, Caleb texts me back immediately and says, oh, I don't think I will do that for, for my own health. And I, uh, that's great. And I immediately text back and said, ha ha, I'm kidding too. Of course, I would count on if I was going to tell Wes that, the fact that I might be able to outrun him. And I mean, Without missing a beat, Caleb texts me back and he said, well, I'm quite sure if we said that in the presence of Wes, that I could outrun you. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that is just perfect, uh, witty, the way that he said, he didn't have to outrun Wes, he just had to outrun me. So anyways, um, Caleb would not at all adopt that mentality in following Christ, but I am sometimes guilty of doing that very thing. Well, all I have to do is outrun the lowest common denominator, right? And that is no way to live. That's not the vision of Christianity that Matthew puts forth in his gospel, in the story of Jesus. And so I continue to ask myself, am I willing to go a step further? Am I willing to go all in? Am I willing to go with the wise men and bring myself and bring what I have and kneel down and fall down on my face and leave all of that before the throne of the one true king. Now, we take a risk when we do things as simple but audacious as taking communion. We believe that when we receive the gifts of Holy Communion, that we meet the real presence of Jesus Christ. We don't have to imagine what it would be like to encounter the living God because we believe we encounter him when the people of God are gathered and the scriptures are read and proclaimed and the prayers are prayed and Holy Communion is served. It's a beautiful and miraculous thing. It's hard to wrap our minds around. But we believe it. We stand by it. And we remind one another week after week that it is true, lest we forget. Lest our faith be deteriorated in a Herod-filled world. So will we risk taking communion today, the Lord's Supper, 
the manna in the wilderness, God himself as the reality that we seek. Because I think one of the main answers, and maybe the answer, to our question about how do we live in a Herod-filled world, I think the key has always been and will continue to be summarized by the word presence. Presence. And Matthew has said as much at the beginning of his gospel and at the very end. At the beginning he says, Joseph, hey, this baby's going to be born. His name shall be called Jesus. You're going to name him Jesus. For he will be Emmanuel, God with us. And then what's one of the last things that Jesus says before he leaves, before he ascends to the right hand of the Father? And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Promises of Christ's presence with us pervade this story and stand, I think, at the center of the story that we've been asked to believe and to practice and to share with our neighbors. In conclusion, I think there are at least two typical erroneous responses to Herod. And we're guilty of this in the church as well. The two ways that we can miss it, living in a Herod-filled world, given the hope that we have. The first way to miss it in a Herod-filled world is to be naive, right? Just to Pollyanna the whole thing and say, oh, it's really not that bad. We just insulate ourselves from all the horrible things, and we'll just pretend that we don't live in a world where some of these unbearably awful things happen. That's one error. Another error is to be reactionary, to be motivated by fear, to basically play into the hand that Herod always wants us to play, which is to react and to be motivated by the same thing that he and all of his likeness would like us to do, which is to behave motivated by fear. So we can try to be naive and stay insulated. We can react based on fear. Or we can find some way forward where we believe real things, that we live in a real world, and we face real difficulties, and we live with things that we can't always explain and that don't fit in our nice, neat little boxes. And with all of that complexity and all of that hope, and all of that anticipation, we can gather one more time, week after week and day after day with our families and our church family, and we can receive these simple gifts of bread and wine. We can pray these simple prayers of our Father who art in heaven, these simple prayers of not my will, but your will be done. And at the end of praying those prayers and enacting these promises, we become a different kind of people. We become a resilient type of person in a world that is looking for hopeful, genuine, resilient people. Because I want to be one of those people. I want to be one of those people when the books are written and the book is closed that it is said about, you know, hey, when the going got tough, when darkness was all around, Ryan was not one of those people that would run away. He was one of those people that would run to the center of the darkness and hold the light, and lift up the light, to, to stand with all of you, all of us, and hold forth these things that we believe, these things that we trust, this God who created us, now redeems us and sustains us. 
whatever vision I have of who I want to be, who I hope to worship, it begins today. It begins today in a new way. It's a story that's familiar. We've followed the story before. I believe God would invite us to follow it in a new way this year, a way that we've never been just because our lives are different this year than they were last year. And God is calling out to us. It begins now with worship and with formation in a very particular story that reminds us that what we worship, who we worship, affects who we become. And both of those things are responses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I look forward to seeing all of us respond together in that way this year. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.